0: Hello there and welcome back. This is part two of our interview with Robert Thorogood for We'd Like a Word, recorded live at Wickham Arts Centre in December 2021. We'd Like a Word. So, I mean, one thing I, I said I was going to ask this evening is that, I mean, your your elevator pitch for the show was uptight British cop yep. in the Caribbean. Yeah so how did you then manage the changeover when ben left because Changes. because obviously when chris came in a very different character well it's interesting isn't it i mean
1: at the time when ben left which um terrified us because ben is simply the greatest actor of his generation i think when he was a student he played hamlet for the national uh, youth theater and things like that i mean it doesn't surprise me he's such an extraordinary brilliant performer, hits his mark, learns his lines, delivers every joke, does the pathos, everything. He's just extraordinary. However, he had a tiny child and so you sort of, um, a bit like David, you know, this is a theme for the actors on the show. The actors that we employ in the show are humans and they have human lives and children and life events that get in the way of me making the show, very selfishly as far as I can tell. So Bennett just had a new child and it no one believes me when i say this but it is the most grueling show to work on if you're an actor full stop if you're the lead on the show it's a nightmare because you're called to set six days one week five days the next and you do that for seven or eight months in 100 percent humidity where it's always 40 degrees and you're in completely the wrong time zone so that when for example this happened to me your wife rings you up and says i'm really sorry but we've lost the cat you're pissed drinking rum because it's nighttime in the Caribbean <laughs> and it's daytime in England. And when you're compass mentis and you could speak to England and pretend that you are actually working really hard and you do miss the family and all of that, you're actually at work and they're asleep. And then when they're sort of in their late afternoon, you're in the bar, which is not a good look. So it's a really tough show. And when Ben left we sort of had a big sort of meeting of the, um, of the brains trust and the feeling in the room was quite quickly was, well, we're going to have to kill him. We don't want to kill him. <laughs> it's funny how you get a laugh. I'm still suffering PTSD from the decision. But if Ben goes back to Croydon, if Richard Poole goes back to Croydon, how on earth is our new detective going to win over an audience if they believe that at any moment, one phone call and Richard Poole's back on a plane. And we took the view, and I'm very proud of this um, because it was brave, which is that we would rather fail than not give the new detective every opportunity. We'd rather the audience just turned off. And because of that, um, it meant, backhandedly, brilliantly, we'd sort of set a precedent where the audience (laughs) felt that we were going to kill the leads. (laughs) So when Chris eventually left, the audience actually were grateful that we just hadn't killed him off. That <laughs> so, they know. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, so, it's just, so we were... We, one of the things about having someone like Tony work on the show, because I was a neophyte, I've now been working on the show 11 years, so I have a degree of... Um, I can now formally say it makes no difference that the phone rang. This is not a theatre, it's just a chat, it doesn't bother me, it's fine. If and has some... the
2: bar is still open. And too. the bar is still open.
1: <laughs> you know, this is the advantage of somebody like Tony on the show. When I was very inexperienced, I'd have killed the show easily within two or three years. But when you've got someone who's been doing this sort of stuff for decades, you know, they know how to transition. And he it was, you know, I remember, I, I think it was me who said we should kill him. And Tony said, we've got to kill him. And then when we transitioned... Um, transitioned from ben to the next character we just tried to create the opposite you know um richard had been uptight um wore a suit couldn't change i mean that's the other thing is that actually had we done as much with richard as we were ever going to do because we we'd sort of already started having conversations where we're going the thing about richard is he won't change And slightly frustratingly, we are in the Caribbean where we can make him go scuba diving and jump out of airplanes and eat lovely food and have Caribbean experiences. But he's going to keep bloody saying no. So when we started to think of a new character, probably the first thing we went with was, let's have someone who says yes. Not because we were frustrated, but because this is an opportunity, isn't it? And if Richard was fastidious and made lists, then let's have somebody who's... uh, Totally disheveled. And before too long, bang, we seem to have come up with Columbo. Because everyone who works on the show is a total murder mystery nut and obsessive like me, like all of us, or some of us. I wouldn't want to tar everyone with the same delightful brush. Um, And we thought, that's the model. So you go from Hercule Poirot, which was kind of... I mean, Hercule Poirot is not Richard Paul. Richard Paul is an angrier, um, more (laughs) inadequate man than Hercule Poirot. Richard's arrogance is a sort of mad self-hatred whereas Hercule has no self-hatred at all but that was very much my kind of model because uh, I adore Hercule Poirot um, so let's come up with Columbo and then before too long you realize with each either detective who goes um, because they have children uh, very unfortunately, with each detective that goes, or, or each member of the cast that goes. See, Camille, right, so Sarah, who played Camille, the wonderful Sarah, um, she realised, because she's very smart, the thing about, if you're asking about Olivia Colman or any of these actors, um, dear God, they're smart. They're just smart. They're, they're street smart. Mm-hmm. Sarah said to us after a little while, you created me, the character of Camille, to be the opposite, the antithesis, to be the argument against Richard Poole. You know, I'd be passionate, whereas he'd be dry. I'd be... um, And now that you've replaced Richard with um, Humphrey, you've kind of gone for the opposite. And I find I agree with Humphrey all the time. There's no disagreement anymore. So maybe it's time to go. And we just went, oh, that's really astute, isn't it? So, you know, with our you know, best wishes, um, we we let her go. When she asked to go, we'd have kept her forever if we could have done.
2: Can I interject? I've got, a, when you're talking about changing the the lead character, so our listener, Joe Colley was saying, it, it struck him as quite like Doctor Who regenerating. Ah.
1: Well, and <laughs> and
2: also, I wonder, has anyone got isn't it? a question about Ardell O'Hanlon? <laughs> so I've okay. got a dead leg like you wouldn't believe. Okay. <sighs> Okay, there's a question about Ardlo Hanlon over there. (laughs) Because if you hadn't, I had one. I personally think he's one of the funniest comedians ever to come onto the British television. Oh, and what's your name and where are you from? Um, I'm Sally Reinders Messenger, and I'm from Cheltenham St. Giles. Is he as funny on set as he is as a character? And before you answer that, the question I was going to ask is... Who's your (laughs) favourite and and who's the best? Anyway, let's hear about Um, Ardle.
1: The thing about Ardle is that he is quite simply the most wonderful human being anyone has ever met. And I remember we were filming in, when we did uh, his introduction story, um, he was filming in... um, southwark somewhere other and the but there's one of those pubs where the mayflower sailed from i can't remember my family and i don't really go to the set very often it's in the caribbean but when we were filming in london we were able to visit quite nicely and there was Ardle and joining a show is quite intimidating and it, it, it because everyone knows each other there's, there's sort of a language of how the show works and he just was so friendly and so nice and so lovely. And all of the other actors kept going, oh my God, he's the nicest person ever. And I remember at one point, he was late onto, on, into the shot because he'd been outside the back waiting to make his entrance into the pub. And this couple who would go around collecting photographs of pubs wanted to show him their photographs of pubs. And he was just outside letting them show him these photographs He's extraordinary. He's still in touch with the production. He still sends emails and texts. There is, And everyone who's ever worked with him has exactly the same stories to tell. I There's met him
0: once at Pinewood Studios during the filming of a different show where he just came along as a guest to watch the recording because he knew the producer and the writer. And after the show, he offered to give a lift to a complete stranger. Well, I'm going that way. I'll take you if you yes. like. Yeah, just complete stranger. You him, know, who uh, hopefully uh, isn't an axe murderer, but... You know, and, still, and all of our actors yeah. are, are nice in the
1: sense that they're bright and engaged and all of those things. Because as I say, you kind of have to be. The people who make it to the top are all of those things, but he's sort of cut from a different cloth. To me, is what I felt. I feel I've got a, a degree of um, I don't know. I'm not entirely perfect. He's just wonderful. I mean, which is to undersell him. He's also funny and he's a stand-up and all of those things. So there's an acerbicness that he can do, but as a human being. Ah. Uh, He's the best of us. A totally nice. Totally nice. Yeah, he's wonderful. There is, there, is, there is nothing more you can say about him other than the, just, he's just a terrific human being. I once went to the pub. I mean, he goes to the pub all the time, doesn't he? But I once went to the pub with him and Danny John Jules, and it was in Soho as well, no less. And so there I am, me on my own, with these two absolute icons of my comedy uh, sort of growing up, my comedy awakening. I'm sitting there pinching myself, going, "I'm getting pissed with with Father Ted and and Dwayne from <laughs> Red Dwarf. I can't believe it." Oh God, okay. uh, Google. Father. Oh, yeah. D- oh sorry, sorry, oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. What I was actually thinking about was actually Barnum. So the first time I saw Danny was in, in Barnum at the Palladium in about 1982, 83-ish. Although I didn't know it
2: at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. I've been given some notes of, to make the second half better. Um,
1: it must reflect on me somehow because I've done the only one who's done the talking. The, the, well,
2: <laughs> try to sit up a bit straighter.
1: So I'll try my best. Okay. See, what you need is you need to tuck your leg underneath here. The left leg goes dead after half an hour. Oh, okay. At I'm least gonna, you keep yeah. your posture. I'm La <laughs>
0: I've just got masses of cushions wedged up behind me to try and keep me upright. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling
2: a bit yoga now. This,
0: this sofa, is a bit like... Um, it's hard to describe it. It's like sitting on a marshmallow. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm
2: going to kick off with a kind of a left-field question. I was out with some people last night. There was a lot of drinking going on. I hope that isn't reflected oh, you're in You're not going to ask him what his favourite pen is, are you?
1: <laughs> he actually asked Stavolo. that of a guest. He no, actually asked a guest, no, what's your favourite pen He has a favourite I'm a writer... Uh, there's a thick gel pen that you can get. I can't remember the name of it, but you get them in boxes of 10. Oh, they're just so covetable. The best ones are those ones with that, that lid. No, I've overstepped the mark.
2: <laughs> you see, what's your favourite pen is a good question. Yeah, all right. So, you but say. what I was going to ask I'm you looking is. at my favourite pen. Um, <laughs> it's one of our regular listeners, Janice mm-hmm. Staines, can't be with us tonight, but a big supporter. And. She didn't actually give me this question, it was kind of... lammy. It's a lammy pen. My favourite pen is the (laughs) Lamy pen. And I took
1: one to South Africa. I worked on a TV show called Trackers. She's going to have to wait. You asked a writer what their favourite pen was. And um, my literary agent sent me this pen saying it would change my life, and it did. I took it to South Africa and I left it in a hotel room. And I've still, what, two years later, felt that it was such a big event in my life... That I tell it as an anecdote in front of a room of people who've paid to hear me talk.
2: <laughs> they're That'll about be £15 each. The lost each.
1: pen. The lost, the pen. lost pen. About £50 each. You really bulk at the price. Oh, but they're lovely. And they've got a little clip on, which means you can keep them on a piece of string around your neck if you wanted to. If you want so, to not
2: lose them, that's what you would do. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Anyway, Sorry, back to do Janice. ask the question.
2: And uh, <laughs> although she didn't actually ask this question, it was William Ward, which was Have you ever been in a punch up? no i think everything yeah not yet
1: not yet um i think everything about my demeanor and approach to uh everything suggests that um if ever a punch-up was happening i'd have already left yeah i'm not no my dad once got into a punch-up at lords and i've always thought that is impressive one, he took me to Lords. I read The Sword and the Stone all day. Didn't realise I was actually watching Ian Botham and Viv Richards because I was too young to appreciate it. But it made me fall in love with T.H. White, which is at least correct. But he got into a punch-up at Lords, and you go, well, fair dues, if you can do it. But no,
2: that's, um, that's not a question that needs this long an answer. Okay, Grant. Maybe we should go back to the audience. Gonna buy Listener a Anisha has a question over that side with her hand up. Anita from Charles St Giles. <laughs> We've heard lovely stories. We love death in paradise. Tell us some scandal and secrets.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Unfortunately, I once told a scandalous story at the Henley Literary Festival. And the next day, the BBC press office rang me up and I got hauled over the coals more than I've ever been before. And vis-à-vis not getting into punch-ups, I desperately need the approval of people I've never met, and it really upset me. So, sadly, um, I'm going to tell you with a straight face that in 11 years of making the show, there's never been a single scandal. (laughs) No marriages, births, or...
0: Real oh, deaths? Oh, we've had
1: some births, actually. Oh, we've had some real deaths. We've been going long enough. Some people have died, unfortunately. Mm. Which is, you know, life happens, you know. It's really strange uh, trying to be a bit, trying to move the conversation away from where we were. When I pitched the show, I was hustling to get the show made. Uh, it was just an idea. And then you get it off the ground. And I remember um, after the first series of when we were shooting it, making a, a pact with God, like um, a picture of Dorian Gray where I just said, if we can just get to a second series, I will agree to anything. Oh, it's with the devil, isn't it? You make it with the devil. Um, I'll agree to anything as long as we get to a second series. Uh, because I felt that if you could just get to two series, then at least you had a fair crack at the whip. When they cancel you after two series, then that's fine. You've got 16 episodes. That's as good as you could have been. And there we are. Three series in, four series in. It, it took time. It really takes time. But within eight or nine years, it had become something that some teenagers had never not known existing. And it becomes this sort of, it becomes its own thing. You know, we work sort of for Death and Paradise and at Death and Paradise, it's this sort of juggernaut. Um, and sadly, because it's gone on, so, no, not sadly, because it's gone on so long, you know, um, Leela, our lovely very first uh, production uh, line manager, died. You know. And, it's that extraordinary thing. You go, it's been going for 11, 12 years. We're doing another series next year. Um, all sorts of life events have happened, including things I can't tell you about on different islands involving drugs.
2: <laughs> okay, that's you've addressed, uh, addressed that one. You've thank you. One. He's actually why. He's protecting me. Uh, I remember asking Anthony Horovitz how many people he'd killed, and he said, in real life or in fiction? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... I was a bit, I didn't know what to say there. Is it, yeah. a, is it
0: a non-zero number? It is. It's a non-zero number. <laughs> okay, less than 10?
2: Less than 10. <laughs> In fiction, more than 40, but in, in real life, less than 10. Yes. The man yes. is extraordinary. He's just mm-hmm. the greatest living writer of mm-hmm. murder Hold mysteries. On. We've got it's another question at the back. I think it's...
3: It's Philip and Tiny from Amazing. We have, we have um, a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old in the house... And thank you, Robert, because um, we look forward, my wife and I look forward to Christmas because we can watch I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here (laughs) and then we go through Christmas and then we can watch Death in Paradise.
1: Oh, thank you. And
3: it just cheers. And it's the only thing, actually, that the teenagers want to sit and watch with us. And I always call it Murder in Paradise. Well, that was
1: what it was very nearly called. And the
3: the three of them, my wife and my two children, like, would you stop? Calling it murder in paradise. <laughs> right. As long
1: as we've got your eyeballs, I don't mind what
3: your mouth And now is. and now and now I just call it murder in Paradise. So that's, that's fine. <laughs> when it comes on, the four of us, like cho- very small children, dance around the guitar riff.
1: Yes. <laughs> do, yes. Do, 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 do.
3: So do I. I do, do that. We, can we can we all sing it together? But <laughs> my question is, who wrote the guitar riff? And then shall we all sing it?
1: Um, well, so the original song is Who's... It's not Who's Wondering Now. It is, one Who's Wondering Now. You're Wondering Now. You're Amy, Wondering Now. Amy right. Winehouse recorded it. it. She recorded yeah. it. We wanted the Amy Winehouse version, and they said they were going to charge us so it. It. much money yeah. that we went, well, we'll just re-record it because the actual, you know, the, the rights to the song. I also, as do my family, dance around to it. And everyone, just be clear... Everyone who works on the production does exactly the same thing, because it is so jaunty. One of the things that gives me so much extraordinary delight. is we're not going to all sing it, because that would just
2: be just. But shameful. we can play it and have a dance. No, uh, we can't. No, uh, yes, not. we can. Let's I'm play I'm getting my it video up because I can't believe this is happening. We can play it. Uh, do no, we have we it handy to play? But you have to join in because you started it at the back. <laughs> no, one of the things that. Oh,
3: God, yeah, here we go. We are.
1: No, one of the glories of light-hearted murder mysteries, and weirdly, people who don't do light-hearted murder mysteries never get this, is that you come in on a really serious situation, you meet this family, oh, they're all the same, Midsummer, Jonathan Creek, it doesn't really matter Jonathan Creek. It's really serious, there's a, a catastrophe, the melodrama, someone gets murdered, you hold on the dead body, blood trickling out of the mouth, and then you get the jaunty music. And, um, and that juxtaposition is just so... I mean, it's not English, because so many cultures have murder mysteries. But I do think only the, the English do it best, or the British do it best. Um, because that's just wrong, isn't it? You know, you shouldn't really... Although we do have rules that we've learned over the years of how we kill. So on Death in Paradise, because it's light-hearted, light-hearted murder... Um, you're always going to get either a shooting, a poisoning, or a stabbing.
2: Yeah, there was a strangling in the, the first strangling. series. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah that with, was a, quite with tights. Yeah, with with and, a scarf. Uh,
1: oh, uh, we, we've done a scarf, we've yeah. also done that went on quite tights. A lot. Mm-hmm. But we are very, very careful. We sometimes have a little bit of a conversation with the director, because the director quite often wants to do the drama of it, and we're trying to protect the eight-year-olds. You know, like mm-hmm. you're saying about your family... One of the things that, we always, that I always felt mm-hmm. that I wanted the show to be was something that all of the family could sit down and watch in the same way that I used to watch um, uh, Agatha Christie or Diagnosis Murder. I'm actually trying to say Murder, she wrote, mm-hmm. that we would all watch with the family or with my parents. Um, the most
0: infamous uncaught murderer of all time. Angela Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, I, think, I, <laughs> I killed them all. It was yeah. me. <laughs> I, I, just, I just love it. If before, bless her, we lose her, because she's in her 90s now, I'd love them to make one last episode oh, where we find out great. that she killed them she all. She did them all. Because it happens wherever she is. I know, I know. Oh, I know. there's an episode in Hong Kong, and someone dies. And there's an episode in Hawaii, and someone dies. It is just a problem
1: with the amateur sleuth, yeah. which... Um, the Marlon Murder Club, which we may yet I talk know. about. Uh, we will. We're oh, we just, will. About just about to talk we'll about it. No, no we'll it's call.
2: absolutely fine. Seeing as we're talking about the music, I have been instructed that I must I ask you, yes. there are various controversies about death and paradise, and for yep. me, the most serious one is, you changed the music. You changed the music. Mm. Why did you change it? We loved the music, and now you've Different changed mix.
1: it. Different the mix. Audience reaction. I know, hiss, boo, it's panto season. So, um, I... You put me on the horns so of I dilemma here because i didn't know we had changed the music however magnus who does the music magnus fines who does the music on the show and is a genius and has saved episode after episode quite often in telly in general but with detective shows murder mystery shows quite often because of this juxtaposition that we have between the light and the serious Um, it's quite hard to bridge. So a really crashing example is we go from a dead body to this jaunty music, and we say the irony is delicious and let's enjoy that stupidity of the jaunty music next door to the dead body. But there are other times when we do want to transition from a really serious moment into a light one. And if you watch Death in Paradise, you watch how often the music will come in towards the end of a scene, and then just carry you through into the next scene and get you into the right frame of mind so that when you're in Catherine's bar, as you cut to Catherine's bar, you're already mentally sort of prepared to be in a much lighter, more fun place. Uh, So Magnus, who is a genius and saves the show, left, right and center, um, I presume was behind the change. And if Magnus wants to change it, then I support him and that's brilliant. Um, It's been 10 years, you're all old, we're trying to get a new audience <laughs> in who don't like who like more bass, I think, <laughs> and more drum. I don't really. I have no language for explaining. I this think far. I displayed a bit of bass there. Yeah, mm. it's it's hard, isn't it? I also was surprised, but it. This is what I mean about the show being its own thing. We're not entirely in control. It's not a beast. It's this extraordinarily demanding creature that we have to keep feeding. Um, that's a beast, isn't it? That's a beast. Um, so we weren't. I, it was a surprise, but I choose to be delighted, because professionally that's a position <laughs> I have to hold.
2: We mentioned the book. Oh, yes. Well, Robert mentioned the book, which I have read, and it's very good, and I highly recommend it. It says on the front, uh, Robert Webb, utterly delightful, which I agree with. Yeah, I called in the favour on that one, didn't I? Well, he was right on this one. So this is, I, I don't, this whole genre is, is one, one that Steve book, which is also exactly writes the same in, book. A Murder to Die For. And there's a particular writer who's given it a lot of attention recently, and you've probably bought his book. Everyone in Britain yeah. has bought his book. This is the one that you should, well, oh, Steve, bless you. This is the one that you should be reading because it's much lighter, agile, nimble, funny, and just works and is consistent. But. Will you tell us a bit about it? About the book? And if you need to read the back to remind yourself. No,
1: yeah. no. Well, <laughs> it's it's funny, in the same way that when we... And this
2: is the Marlowe Murder Club. Yes,
1: the Marlowe okay. Murder Club. So after many, many years of coming up with male detectives and sort of being preoccupied with that male approach towards solving crime, I felt that I wanted to do something with a female protagonist. And funnily enough, back in 2003, I think, I sold my first ever script... To uh, Granada, as was um, called How to Murder Your Husband, which is still a good idea. Uh, no, not that, as someone who is a husband. The, um, it was the idea of four bridge playing women who were in their 60s who realized that their husbands are about to retire, so they're all going to do a stranger's on a train and bump off each other's husbands. So three of them will kill one, three of them will kill one. Uh, and I sold this to Granada. And what I really enjoyed about that, I went and interviewed my mum and her friends. Tragically, 20 years later, quite a lot of whom have died. And I went and interviewed my wife Katie's mum and her friends. And talking to them about killing their husbands was one of the funniest (laughs) things I've ever done. Not getting many male laughs on that, (laughs) but there's definitely a lot of female buy-in. Because I remember the very first question I asked them Eileen and her bridge-playing friends was, have you ever thought of uh, killing your husband? Well, it's ball bearings at the top of the stairs, says one of them. (laughs) Because you can just pick them up afterwards. And who's no, he's a um, clumsy bugger at the best of times. He's going to break his neck. They'd all, I mean, obviously, in a fantasy way, had decided to do it. And that's always really stuck with me, the idea of women and crime. There's something uh, just delightful about that world. And back in 2015, um, I came up with this idea called The Murder Club, which would be about um, a character a bit like Judith Potts, who's the lead character in the novel. Uh, but I came up with it as a TV show. Um, and I sold it to cost who make uh, Monarch of the Glen back in the day, my favourite programme back in the day. Um, and we developed it and we tried to... To set it up and it didn't land one of the problems I've had in the past of trying to sell a, a murder mystery show is that the BBC will, will never buy it because it would be a rival to definitely take me off Death in Paradise which is sort of stupid from their mm. point of view uh, so we failed to set it up um, but I again had sort of developed the idea further and then when I had um, I've been writing Death in Paradise novels because I've always been obsessed with uh, Agatha Christie and reading Agatha Christie novels and trying to learn how she does it and trying to basically copy, Not you can't copy her, it's just stupid to imagine, but trying to uh, do your best shot at, at doing a, a murder mystery novel. After writing four Death in Paradise novels, I finally felt I had the courage to do my own thing. And I, I'm published by HarperCollins, and I said to my um, editor, in fact, what he said to me was, so, what is book five in the Death and Paradise series? And I went, oh, I'm really sorry, I've not planned that. I've actually come up with a new thing based on this old idea that I've been knocking around for ages about a group of women who solve crime. Um, and then as I was writing it, lo and behold, Richard Osman came up with the exact same idea. And then it became the biggest selling book in publishing history. He got the largest advance of any first-time writer. And it was, paradoxically the best news that it could have ever happened for me because suddenly the genre of lighthearted murder mystery, even the title, you know, M- M- Murder Club, I'd got the title. I mean, I presume Richard, who I've never met, has done the same. The very first ever um, Miss Marple story is in a story called The Tuesday Murder Club. So I was nicking the title, thinking that I'd be the only one who was nicking the title. Um, but I presume um, he's coped fine with the fact that I've sold some copies compared to his millions all around the world. And it's made a huge difference for me. So I'm just am hugely grateful uh, that um, his book came out in September and I came out in January. And he pumped, he primed the pump, in
2: effect. Mm-hmm. Anyone here been to Marlow? I imagine quite a lot of you have been to Marlow. Some of you are even from Marlow. The setting, the river, mm-hmm. flowing through it, is an important thing in the book. But one of the things you learn very quickly from telly is
1: that place is absolutely everything. And place, as they say, is a character. And one of the most important characters, think of Death in Paradise, I mentioned this earlier, the, the, the Guadeloupe, Day A, where we filmed, the little fishing village, Day A, where we film uh, the show, is the star of the show. You know, there's no question about it. Actors come and go, corpses come and go, um, but Day A remains the same and you get to know it. And, you know, I've been out to uh, day A and you can get to sit in Catherine's Bar because it's a real bar. And you sit there going, oh my God, I'm actually in Catherine's Bar. And everyone I know who works on production or who works on the show always has that feeling of like, God, I'm in Catherine's Bar. The woman who runs it really resents that we keep filming there because she thinks it takes away customers. But after the last (laughs) hurricane, because we've got amazing crew, they just rebuilt the whole thing for her. I think she could be more grateful, that's my feeling. Oh, have you been there? She is a bit, isn't she? I was actually being quite diplomatic. I'm afraid, the,
2: I mean, never mind people going to Marlow. we've got people who've been to But that's Catherine's amazing, that,
1: but isn't it beautiful? You sit there and don't you just go, this is literally, because the reason why it's literally Catherine's Bar, because we filmed there, we don't dress it, although you can see all of the cable ties have been put on by a British crew, because they're that fat and that tightly yeah. um Put on. But because I'd learned that Guadalupe is, is, uh, is such an important part of the show, when I set it in Marlowe, the wisdom of setting a uh, book in the same town where you live is a question that I think I answered by writing this book, and the answer is, there is no wisdom. That's a stupid idea, because people keep talking to you about the small discrepancies that you've got in the book from the reality. But I knew that the town had to be a star of it, and what has Marlow got? It's got the river. And the river is a good way, when thinking of murders and thinking of getting around a place, you've got roads, but actually a river is a far more interesting way of linking stories. And I wanted to put Judith in a great big arts and crafts mansion on the river, because, I want to live in a big arts and crafts mansion on the river and I can't do it because they won't sell me one for the price that I would buy it for. It also doesn't exist. So, um, And interestingly, it's been published in France and they're quite literal, the French. And um, there we are. I took three glasses of wine. Um, they're lovely, but then let's not make um, generalisations based on culture or anything. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Um, but they were looking at... They drew a map at the front of the book and they got really thrown... A question to save me.
2: Chris t- Evans, Marlowe. He is basically the biggest advocate, the greatest advocate of all. He Marlo. is, isn't he? He's wonderful. It's like Marlowe, M- Um I think you should get on to the breakfast show.
1: Oh, that's very
2: kind of you. need I... to be because you would be just
3: superb in the morning, chit-chat, Marlowe. <laughs> he loves
2: Marlowe. Yeah, no, he runs, go whenever running I hear with him. him. He talks about it, doesn't he? <laughs> and if he doesn't let you on, kill him off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In your
1: book. Well, you know, we could always have a radio DJ that I kill in the second book. Um, but yes, I, I don't know where he lives in Marlowe, but I presume <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, there
2: we are. So we now all know where he lives. So
1: there's we've got people who,
3: who,
2: who have a more intimate knowledge yes, of the, the geography future. of your town. Yes. I'm just thinking for there people listening to this in the future. The people, what are they talking about? They're kind of giving directions to Chris Evans' house around Marlow. But Marlow is Marlow <laughs> is brilliant
1: as a murder mystery location. I mean, it's not original really, because if you think of St Mary Mead, or you think of Midsummer, or any of these quintessentially, English murder mystery shows that I adore they are broadly always set in a pretty county town mm. um, and you sort of want the bunting down the street and you want the war memorial and the uh, lovely old bridge and all Saints' Church and all of that. But the reason is is because of course you want to show this facade of perfection, you want to show the uh, the um, just how very sort of smart it all is, and then undercut it by saying. Actually, there's a serial killer on the loose, and we all have murder in our hearts, and we'll do it for quite suburban reasons. And I'd sort of been fighting against settings. I'd never, I'd never set anything in the town where I lived, but it was just I kept thinking, do you know what? To get to Guadeloupe in order to do any research, I have to get on an aeroplane and go to Paris. Then you get I, I, this is crocodile. Oh, sorry, Blazers. no, no, but wait, wait, oh. darlings, there's no direct flights to Guadeloupe. Um, it is a faff to get to, um, and so so you can't check anything without. I can only go like once a year, if that. So oh. no, I know. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> There's but this uh, is an like invisible
2: violin being played. I there. know. But
1: you should see the size <laughs> of it. Um, it's um, it's the same when the actors say how hard it is working out there. It it, it is just just from a functional time point of view to do any <laughs> research. It's, it's at least eight hours, nine, ten hours before I can do any research and I just thought if I said it in Marlowe which has everything that a quintessential English town St Mary Mead would have um, to do research I just walk out of my front door and turn left or turn right um, and then my postie Fred who basically is the Mafia Don of Marlowe um, uh, yeah the Mafia Don of Marlowe uh, got wind that I was setting it in Marlowe and he said that uh, I had to put him in it and I thought was well, shit. And and you did. Yeah, he's got the most power over me of anyone. Because if my post stops arriving, we're screwed. Um, So Fred Smith gets a a whole chapter to himself in the book. And it was just blackmail, really. (laughs) So now you've
2: revealed that you're open to this pressure from your neighbours. Yeah, yeah,
1: but it's got to be proper leverage. I won't do it for anything.
2: (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, that's the challenge. We want more questions. More questions, yeah. Okay, there's one right there in the front. Hold on, where is our yeah, special... Oh, sorry, no, there's one down here. Hi there, this sorry.
0: is uh, Kevin from Chesham. My question is, how many more stories or series do you think you have left? Uh, and how, at, at this point in time, and we're not going to hold you to this, how would you kill it off, the, uh, the whole series? How would you end it?
1: Oh, well, I have a fun idea of how to end it. Oh, do, you like... know, do you know what? Weirdly, at the beginning of every series, uh, we think we've got nothing. And we sit there. The people who make the, the, the sort of the, the brains trust, I mentioned this earlier, so there's there's Alex and there's Alexandra, Alex. Alexandra, it's television. Um, my drummer, Robert. So um, there's James and there's Tim. And we sit there and we always go, we've got nothing. Absolutely nothing. But you just talk and you try and think, well, what haven't we done? We often talk about Agatha Christie's, not in a a stealing sense, but as in, what are the sort of tropes that she, but we talk about Agatha Christie because she invented everything. You know, what are the tropes we've not done? So, or the genres we've not done. So for the next series coming up, I've written the first episode and I just went, we've never done a kidnapping. So why don't we start off with the kidnapping in progress And then there's a merger. So you sort of go, well, what would a kidnapping murder even look like? So you sort of just start asking questions. And then slowly, because the people in the room are very talented, um, you kind of come up with an idea of what that might be. A couple of series ago, I did a radio station episode because my wife works in radio. And again, you go, well, if we did a radio station, what have we got? What are the cards we can play? And you go, well, soundproof booths. So if you shot someone... So that's why it's a shooting murder, because it's a soundproof booth. But also there's the ability to pre-record stuff that goes out on the radio, and then you sort of build it up. And you've got to get to eight episodes. This year we're doing a Christmas special, which was a very late decision. Thank you, BBC. Um, Which meant that having come up with eight, we actually had to come up with a ninth. So that was very, very challenging, particularly, as I say, for the actors, because their gig just got very, very long. Um, But you eventually... Get there, and at the end of it, every year we go. Oh, well, I don't know how we did that. That was fantastic. Well done, everyone. We'll never do that again. And then you start up again with. Well, I haven't got anything. Well, what about um, killing off the whole and, and the killing off everyone? So um, they've got a volcano. I've, we've got well. You say that we were going to rise. Right, the volcano episode. We we went and wrecked on Montserrat. Right? I've done no cool things in my life. I've mm. had drinks in Soho with Danny John-Jules and uh, Ardle. And uh, we went on a recce to Montserrat, which we got to by speedboat. Right, now that was cool. And the reason why we went to Montserrat was never quite explained to me, except the fact that wouldn't it be cool. They've got a genuine volcano um, uh, watch place, because obviously Mm. Montserrat struggles with volcanoes. Um, So we wrote our volcano episode uh, about the time that Brexit happened, the pound collapsed, we couldn't afford to go to Montserrat anymore, so we did it all with green screen. But the, the... the trip was was very, very nice, so we, we, it's not a volcano episode. Now I've never told Red Planet this, but I think that for the last episode, we should just get out all of the extant detectives. We should get out Humphrey, we should get out. We should just get everyone out. Get out, Camille, get out everyone we've ever had. Richard will have to appear as a ghost, which I have no problems with. He's done it before. he's done it before. Again, that was a good moment. Uh, it was Tim Key, the executive producer on the show, said do you think for our 10th series we could have Richard back as a ghost? I went, yes, we can have him back as a ghost. And I remember when I was in the room went, really? Do we do ghosts? And I went, yes, we do ghosts. So, yeah, he came back as a ghost. So that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have um, a meeting of the detectives. And maybe one of them is, maybe they're all suspects. But I don't know, you know, you know exactly. You have a bit of murder on the Orient Express. But you know how these things are we'll probably get cancelled in between series. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We, we maybe won't get that run in or the run up to, it, to the big ending. It's always a whimper, isn't it, rather okay. than a bang? next question. Next question. I'm
0: Jonathan from Bedford. Bedford. Oh, Bed Come all of
1: this way, Jonathan from Bedford. Just for you? No. Well, uh, all
0: of you, all of you, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> good recovery, good, good recovery. recovery. Uh, uh, may I ask two that. questions? The first yes. really is... Um, would you think about doing perhaps three deaths in an episode as an homage Ah. to uh, (laughs) Midsummer?
1: Interestingly, I'm going to twitch on this, we discovered quite early on, right, so you've got to introduce a new world, that episode of Death in Paradise, with new characters. You've got to kill someone. Then you've got to um, work the scene. You've got to interview the, the, the surviving members of the family or the grouping. And then you've got to discover the oddity clue, whatever that is, you're 18 minutes in. We've got to have a scene with Harry the Lizard where we go back to the shack. There's got to be some kind of B story of what's going on with the police station that week. Um, there's got to be um, something for Catherine to do, something for Don, the amazing Don Warrington to do. And before you know it, you actually, you're, we're always fighting to get stuff into the episode. Mm. And if you kill even one extra person, that's another yeah. crime scene you've got to work with. That's another chunk of clues you've got to do. When you write a book you actually need to kill quite a lot of people because it keeps, you know, um, the energy up, you know, because a book is 80-odd thousand words or 70-odd thousand words, but in a 60-minute episode, it's really hard. Midsummer, 90 minutes long. Jonathan Creek, 90 minutes long. We are the only show stupid enough to try and do it in 60. But I always used to say that Monk could do it in 42, so we could do it in 60.
0: Mm. Okay. And the second question is, (laughs) why did you call it a
1: Jeep rather than a Land Rover? Uh, Right, why did I call it what Jeep? A Jeep. They all say get in the Jeep, and it's a Land Rover. So the way way television... How un-British. I know. So the way television works is an idiot with no money living in Walthamstow, Um, writes a story having never been to the Caribbean and having never done anything with the police and having no knowledge of Land Rovers and then when they um, start to say let's make this, that idiot goes to meetings and says I've never been to the Caribbean, I think I need to the Caribbean and then everyone in the room goes yeah sure you want to go to the Caribbean, you're not going to the Caribbean, so there's so much I didn't know, the very first time I ever stepped foot in the Caribbean was after I'd written but five episodes of the first series, um, we'd been greenlit, we were shooting it, and no, it was no, there was a recce, I went on a recce, that's right. But we had been greenlit. So the first time I had, that's, I'd written three episodes, forgive me, my memory's gone hazy. Um, and that was when I knew what it was like. So it was done, you know what I said on the Friday, they said come up with the characters by Monday? That's kind of how it happened. Fortunately, because quick decisions are often the best decisions, a lot of those decisions have survived but i here and now admit i haven't the first knowledge about cars i just called it a jeep i mean what is it, <laughs> it i didn't, it until is. now i didn't even know i'd been causing offense
2: <laughs>
3: okay i do apologize a- any other
2: uh, complaints from the any audience other complaints? <laughs> um but there was a question in the sorry front, the front table one of you guys are not quite sure and who are you and where are you from hi My i'm
3: friend. petra from high wickham just up the road um we're back in the day when you were pitching mm-hmm. and you got all these rejections, uh. how did that make you feel and what kept you going to, to get to where you are now? Uh, that's,
1: yeah. His wife. Yeah, well, it is my wife, yeah. Well, it, it is. I mean, that, that's true. What was really hard... Right, I can't control what people think of the show and I can't control what people think of a pitch. But what I can control is what I'm doing. And so as I got older, I realised which is why I uh, pitched so passionately and never let an opportunity go. Why when I was even thinking of Midsummer Murders, I was going, I've got to develop an idea because what if they ever said to me, what's the idea? And I didn't have anything, like that's the moment gone. I sort of in a slightly process-driven way just went, if I keep doing my absolute best, every day I would, this is a therapy session, every day I would get up and I'd go, what have I done today? that has advanced my career, just a millimetre. So I've got quite famous friends by this stage who have just gone off and earned loads of money, nice houses in Belsize Park, all very swish. And I'm the least successful of of my group of friends who are still in the industry. But I just thought they got there quickly. I had the sense of there's a destination. I know where I want to go. I'm just going slowly. So as long as I am making progress every day, then I'll get there. And it'll take me longer. I was 38 when the show got commissioned, two children. That's, the, that's where my lovely wife, Katie, comes in. Um, because for 10 years, she'd be just keeping us afloat with a regular salary. Um, but as long as I go slowly, I will still get there. You know, it's the tortoise and the hare. Having said that, though, oh, what if it hadn't come off? If, I, if, I had, if, if Bob Wilmer hadn't been killed, uh, or died, rather, I wouldn't be sitting here.
2: Uh, any more questions from the back? Some, it's, we've got these bright lights in our face. It's yeah. very showbiz. Yeah, we can't it's see anyone. to see. Aha, here we go. Hello.
3: Who are you and where are you from? Jill from Sheffield.
2: Oh, my word. Although Sheffield. originally <laughs> from Glasgow.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a Sheffield accent. <laughs> my gosh,
2: somebody has come from Sheffield tonight. And Glasgow. <laughs> Aye. All the way from Glasgow. This is amazing.
3: Um, I know it's a long way off, Well, hopefully, (laughs) but a lot of writers that I've spoken to before,
2: everybody wants them to go on forever. Hmm. But do you have a retirement
3: plan?
1: I don't. I don't know because um, I've come to this quite late. Hmm. So I've only really been um, like I stopped temping in 2009. So I've only been so. so There's still a hunger there to to write. But truthfully, I don't know where ideas come from. So I don't know when the ideas stop. If an idea, I mean, writing is miserable. You know, it's it's getting up every morning, pressing that button to turn the screen on and just feeling, oh God, another X number of words today. What if today's the, every day you go, what if today's the day nothing comes? And that is not a big problem, but it is how I pay the mortgage. So I sort of go, I just don't know, is today the day. So one day that'll come, and or maybe it won't. It's, it is vocational in that sense, isn't it? You know mm. you, you write because it's an illness, there's this desire, this desperate, pathetic attempt to s- sort of try and gain approval from people you've never met. But um, <laughs> I'm it's thinking tricky. that
2: this could be a good time to bring things to an end. Oh gosh, everyone's done very well We've been here a couple of hours I you know, have, yes. it's fabulous And thank you very much for your questions <laughs> Spontaneous applause Spontaneous Sh- applause oh, Thank you very much for listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters and, and
0: me, Stephen Colgan
2: And our special guest, the author of The Marlowe Murder Club, Robert Thurgood. We
0: thank do. you very much
2: And I did try to set up a bit straighter, I hope that
3: works. It is hard.